Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my book-loving wife, as always, Liberty. We're a married couple with different hobbies, and we try to bring each other into our interests by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. Today will be hopefully a less somber episode ending than the previous one with the sports episode, so it's books. Yes. In the book world this week, we've had quite a few Game of Thrones-related announcements. So we're going to avoid that and start with something else. I was like, I'm wondering where you're going here. Because uh, George R.R. R. Martin is not my favorite. So we're going to avoid him for now and start with Dolly Parton. Yes, because that's a much better decision. She has teamed up with James Patterson to publish her debut novel, which is going to be a thriller. Run Rose Run is going to be set in Tennessee and will follow a young woman moving to Nashville to pursue her musical dreams. Huh, it sounds like an autobiography, but with somebody else's name on it for her. Well... It's a fictional thriller. I don't think she's been murdered or attempted murder. Yeah. It is set to publish on March 7th of 2022 and will be accompanied by an album based on the characters and the plot of the novel. So I thought that part, that tie-in was interesting. I knew there was going to be a weird plug somewhere in there, but... I don't know. It sounds like it could be pretty good. I think it just depends on how it was done. Plus, she teamed up with James Patterson, so like, I feel like it's got to be okay at least. Yeah, we'll see. James Patterson doesn't have the tendency to partner and publish books that aren't really stinker books, so, you know, should be all right. And getting to George R.R. R. Martin, it seems that he is hard at work, but not necessarily on the next book in the A Song of Ice and Fire series. On August 10th, he announced that he's starting to work on a graphic novel entitled Voyaging. It is set in the Thousand Worlds series, or world, and tells the story of the novella The Plague Star. The graphic novel focuses on Haviland Tuff, who is a trader and ecological engineer, and it is expected to release at some time in 2023. So it's a novella in a world that he's already established and it's just being turned into a graphic novel based on my understanding. It just seems so weird to me that like the book he's writing actively was supposed to be released years ago. Yes. And he's just like, oh. That's just his MO. Yeah, it's it's just rough because like being a kind of George R.R. R. Martin fan of some of the things that he's released, I'm like, ooh, cool, something new. But at the same time, I'm like, Man, oh man, like, the people that are reading the book series must just hate him at this point. Yeah. I mean, I would. Yeah. But also this week there were new cast announcements for HBO's House of the Dragon TV show. That is a Game of Thrones prequel about the House Targaryen. Targaryen. I always say it wrong. It's okay. One day you'll nail it right on the head and then there'll be, like, cheer sound effects. I'll put it on in the, the podcast. We'll record it. David Horovich is said to be joining the cast, but no announcement on what role he'll be filling has been made. He's a Shakespearean actor who often posts videos of himself reading Shakespeare's sonnets. He has also appeared in Thriller, The New Avengers, and Miss Marple. Also, Johnny Weldon is rumored to join the cast in the role of Samuel Blackwood, who is the head of House Blackwood. The TV show House of the Dragon is expected to debut on HBO in 2022. It's based on George R.R. Martin's fictional history, Fire and Blood, which accounts the reign of House Targaryen. Nailed it. 
hundreds of years before the events of A Song of Ice and Fire. So proud of you. Don't be. I already heard you say it. Doesn't count. Thank you. You're welcome. It wasn't on the recording, so it's just in your ears. (laughs) My ears appreciate it. And then one that I think you'll find interesting, but I've been wrong every time I've said that on the book episode, so we'll find out. (laughs) Danny DeVito has been recruited to write an all-new Penguin-centric comic book focusing on the monocled supervillain. I don't know that I trust Danny DeVito to write it. I think that's my main concern. I'm hoping there's other writers that are just ghostwriting with him. Hopefully. Because otherwise it's going to be trash. Because Danny DeVito has had some drug problems over the years. And I just don't trust somebody like that to write a thing and be like, wow, this is so great. But he did literally play the Penguins. So right, like right. He probably that's has probably why some he was grasp. brought in. Yeah. It seems like a little bit of a publicity stunt to just make more money by DC, but we won't go there, I guess. The story is for DC's Gotham City Villains Anniversary Giant number one, which goes on sale on November 30th. In the original 1992 movie Batman Returns, Danny DeVito starred opposite Michael Keaton's Batman as Oswald Cobblepot, a psychopath raised by literal penguins looking to exact revenge for his abandonment as a child. Is it bad? I didn't know he was actually raised by penguins. So the problem is there's, like, that's the main original storyline that existed, but there's been so many interpretations of it, like Gotham, where he's living with his mom or whatever. Right. So, like, it's, like, it's the better one, like, in my opinion. So comic fans would be ashamed of me, but there's also a reason for my confusion? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then we have more Dune-related news. I feel like I've been hearing about Dune for five years. Here's the issue. They they try to redo so many things with Dune, and it never either ends up being finished or it's not good. And so, I don't know. It's I'm on the fence about more Dune things. Well, for this one, there's going to be a making of book called The Art and Soul of Dune by executive producer Tanya Lapointe. It's getting its own soundtrack as well, courtesy of the film's composer Hans Zimmer. Zimmer was reportedly heavily inspired and captivated by Lapointe's book. The soundtrack will be available to buy and stream when Dune arrives in theaters on October 22nd. The art and soul of Dune will also be available for purchase on that date, so it's like a big Dune release day where they've got the movie, the making of book, the soundtrack... And then the Inspired By soundtrack. So what I'm hearing is it's either going to be a really good day for Dune money-wise, or it's going to be a gigantic flop on four fronts. Well, speaking of them making money, let's discuss your book options. You can choose between two versions of the book, the standard edition or a limited edition, which is only selling 700 copies worldwide. Both editions will include cast and crew interviews and behind-the-scenes photography by cinematographer Greg Fraser. However, the limited edition book, which will cost you about $600, includes a card signed by the stars Timothy Chalamet and Josh Brolin, along with Lapointe and Fraser. And Villanueva? Yes. I got you. Thank you. Yeah. You will also receive your very own Fremkit booklet, which is seen in the film and has exclusive artwork. You can also read commentary in this edition from Brolin that reflects the 
aesthetic of the film, if you want to call it that. And the package altogether is wrapped up in book cloth with the film's iconography on the front and the back. So that's kind of a cool collector thing, I think, for like Dune fans, I guess. But like, I feel like this is something that you would want if you're already into Dune and you really enjoy that series as a whole. Right. And if you're already pretty sure that you're going to like the movie. Because I feel like you also have to enjoy the movie in order for this to be a big thing for you. Right. And worth $600. Right. I'm on the fence about it. Like, I, I like the original Dune movie. I've, I've never read the book personally, so I can't speak to that. But, boy, like, it, it was a cult classic for a reason. They shouldn't mess with it. They should just leave it be. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm not a big, giant Dune fan like some people are. But it's just like... I think it's really going to depend on, basically, the overall consensus of how the book is versus the movie versus everything else that's already come out. So I'm just going to wait and see what everyone else thinks before I decide whether or not to watch it or read it. That's probably the right decision. Um, Obviously, if there's a limited number of those things, at some point that will be worth something to Dune fans maybe. But I mean, if it's not a big flop. Like the only thing thing. that would be cool for me is A, the way that it sounds like it's going to be packaged. I think that would be really neat. And I am a Josh Brolin fan, so I would be okay with having an autograph from Josh Brolin. I think that would be cool. But the rest of it, it's just like, it's pictures in a book. Yeah. Like, I think if the whole thing's a flop, it's not going to be a great investment. But if it does really well and becomes like the next big thing for, you know, even normal, regular people who don't like sci-fi or who don't read a lot. Then it might be worth the investment. I think it will be worth a lot. I think I would not invest in something like that unless I was already a big fan of that author, that book, the series, whatever. So proceed with caution. But that was all the book news for the week. Now we're moving on to the tag section, and in an attempt to bring in the cooler weather that I am desiring, especially now that our AC is broken yet again. Well, kind of working right now, for now. It's limping along. Yes. And I am looking to bring in, like, the autumnal feelings. I decided to do autumn-related questions, which I hope you will enjoy. I struggled with answering a few of these, so it should be interesting. I'll just leave it at that. So the first question is, are there any books you plan on reading over the autumn season? And I said, well, I've already planned all my reading for the rest of the year. So yes, I have. I plan on diving into some darker books this autumn, one of them being If We Were Villains, which is like dark academia. But staying on that theme, I'm also planning on reading Ace of Spades, which is also Dark Academia. I just think it might be high school, possibly, versus If We Were Villains, which is college. Got it. And I said, possibly A Lesson in Vengeance, if that is the Alcrate book for August, because you ordered an Alcrate box for me for our anniversary. So if that is the book coming in the August box, which I assume it is, I'm also going to read that this autumn, which is also Dark Academia. Yeah. So you're just stacking them up back to back to back. You're going to well, do like one a week so that like it's staggered or you're going to do them all in one week? It's going to be spread out over the course of the months of autumn. Yeah. So I'm not going to read a bunch of Dark Academia in the same week because I feel like that's a little much. I also plan on peppering in rereading the Inheritance Games because that sequel is coming out early next month. 
And then I also want to reread the Clue Murder Mystery series by Diana Peterfrund because the sequel and I think final book is coming out this fall as well. So a lot of murder mystery, like creepy things that I'm excited for. I would say I'm shocked, but I'm not. The one book I have on my list would predominantly be possibly Hatchet just because it does kind of take place in that fall to winter time frame. Yeah, so probably like later in September or something. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it would be good for us. And and it's a short, easy book, so it's not like, you know, it's middle grade, so it's not like it's going to be something that's too crazy. Right. Of course, we have to finish the Renegade series for you. Yeah. I also want to try getting you to read the Skyward series by Brandon Sanderson because it's sci-fi and it's got a lot of action in it. And I don't have any Sanderson experience. And the third book is coming out in late fall of this year, so that will be good. Yeah. I also am getting a Dark Academia NetGalley book I got approved for it recently called All of Us Villains by Amanda Foodie and Herman, something Herman, Christine Lynn Herman, maybe? I didn't write that down. It's just on the top of my head. So I'm saying you're looking at me like I have the answer and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I've read books from both of those authors before. That's why I requested it from NetGalley. So gotcha. I think you're going to have a more actiony fall, whereas I'm going to have like a Dark Academia fall. I don't think either of us are going to be upset then. No. The second question is, do you enjoy scary books and films? If so, what are some of your favorites? You know I'm a fan of both of those. I know. That's why I put the question in here for um, you. I basically put yes uh, in all capital letters with some exclamation marks behind it, but obviously I'm not going to yell into the mic. Please don't. I don't want to spike it and destroy it, my investment, but... I was more concerned about my ears. Well, I can turn down your volume on your headset if I have to, as I'm about to, I guess. But I really wrote down, like, movie-wise, I think my big one is anything Guillermo del Toro. It's just, like, that creepy horror that just sticks in your brain, and I love it. And you forced me to watch it multiple times. Yes. Very many. But there's... Too many. There's other things that he's done that aren't quite that dark, but, like... You like the creepy dark stuff. I do. It's so exciting. It's good stuff. I don't like the like stupid jump scare, like the fan cam nonsense where it's like it goes one way and then there's just a creepy thing like that. I, I hate that crap. Yeah. Like, but Guillermo del Toro stuff, top notch. I said, for me, not really. I'd prefer what I call, quote, scary movies. They're more like B-rated scary movies where the intention isn't actually to like scare you or freak you out. It's just like... I don't know, like, it's supposed to be scary, but you're not actually scared. So more of, like, a thriller scary movie rather than just, like, a... Well, like, definitely not a slasher, and I would rather, if anything, it be more like a psychological thriller than, like, blood and gore and stuff like that. Right. But the one reference I actually put in here isn't any of those things, and it's Clue from 1985 with Tim Curry. All-time favorite movie ever. I've made him watch it every October since we started living together but I prefer my actual scary stuff in book form because like I'm not as like into it maybe or like I feel like it's the other way around for me so like if I'm reading a book it really sticks with me whereas with a movie I'm like all right that was creepy it's in my brain it'll probably be gone in like a day or so but I actually prefer mysteries rather than horror or thriller in books I prefer YA mysteries specifically because it doesn't quite have the same tropes as adult. Not necessarily about how dark it gets, just I don't like a lot of the methods that mystery writers use in adult mysteries versus YA mysteries because it's all about having unreliable narrators and 
having so many twists and turns that you have no idea where the story could possibly even go and trash like that. I can understand that. Some of my favorite YA ones are Truly Devious by Maureen Johnson. I don't shut up about that series. Also, the Clue Mystery series by Diana Peterfriend was really good, but that, I think, leans more on me enjoying the movie Clue than anything else. And Jennifer Lynn Barnes has come out with some good mystery, thrillery things, so her as an author as a whole, I enjoy. But also, there was a middle grade series I read last year, or might have been last year into this year, the Cassidy Blake series by V.E. Schwab about a ghost hunter child. So I like things that aren't actually scary, but like they're in the neighborhood of being scary. Gotcha. I feel like that's a good way to explain it. Yeah. And the next question, I don't know if either one of us is going to have a good answer for, but I liked the question. And it's, which fictional friend group would you trust with a Ouija board? So I didn't go based on trust because I feel like a lot of the friend groups we've read about, I don't know that I would ever trust them with a Ouija board. I said none of them. Absolutely none of them. Yeah. The one I went with, though, was the one we're reading actively right now. I put Adrian Everhart's patrol group. The patrol team, yeah. Only because... I feel like it would be fun to have, like, smoke screen there as, like, it's getting darker and darker on the Ouija board. It's just, like, smoke. I think that would be really, like, just eerie and creepy, and I think it would be a lot of fun. But I feel like they would definitely take it as a joke and not be serious about it at all, which would be fun. I said I definitely would not trust. Like, I picked out one that I absolutely would not trust at all, and it's the Crows from Six of Crows. Oh, yeah, that would be bad. Absolutely not. Yeah. But if I had to pick one, I would probably pick Locke and Jean from the Gentleman series because they wouldn't believe it, and they would just, like, mess around and make it silly and not scary. Yeah. In which book setting would you love to celebrate Halloween night? So there's a chance that we might have the same answer on this one, just depending on what you pick. Because if you picked your favorite series, which would be Harry Potter, you nailed it right on the head for me as well. Cause I did not pick that because it felt very obvious and it felt like oh, you were going to pick that one. So I, I did. picked something else. I picked it only because like just the scenes and the descriptions of them in the past have you been so, so great. You see so many Halloweens there that it's like, of course, that is that's, so much fun. That would be the, a blast. I'm sorry. I would yeah. be over the moon about it. I mean, that's a very me answer. Like, of course I would, but... I said I could see something like that being fun in like the Grishaverse or the Grishaverse or in the real world. It would be fun at Ellingham Academy in the Truly Devious series just because like the people who run Ellingham have a lot of money. So I feel like they could make it like a lot of fun with the decor and layout and everything. Right. Which fictional character would you dress as for Halloween? My answer is very obvious in this one for who I am as a person. Are you choosing Luna? Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter if I got to pick any costume and money wasn't an object because last Halloween I considered it, except for, you know, COVID was a thing, because my hair was the right length at that point in time. All I would have had to do was really, like, bleach my hair to make it, like, a dirty blonde, but... To get that done well is expensive. That's why I say if money isn't an object. And in the time of COVID, it's also not the best experience in the world right right now at that point. I don't really have one because, like, I haven't dressed up for Halloween since I was probably, like, 13 years old. So it's been a long time, and I'm not one that's really into, like, the cosplay world. The easiest one for me would obviously be the bad guy from Harry Potter in the sense that it would be... um, God, why am I drawing a blank here all of a sudden? I literally had this 
Voldemort? No, no, God, no, 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 uh, no. That's the bad guy in Harry Potter. No, but there, <laughs> <laughs> there are other bad guys in Harry Potter, though. <laughs> Lucius? No, it's kid, though. Draco. Draco. I don't know why I had such a bad <laughs> brain fart on that. We have to leave all that in except for maybe the profanity I used. But, yeah, like I feel like that would be the easiest one for me just because it would just be like slicking my hair straight back. I am kind of already have that right frame and everything as well. So it's and not, blonde. Yeah. yeah, so it wouldn't be that complex. I feel like being an adult who is thinking about dressing up as a character for Halloween, you have a lot more options. Like, you don't have to just be the hero or just be the villain. Like, you can explore, like, other things. Yeah. But it would be weird if I was Draco and you were Luna. It just wouldn't be right. I bet there's a fanfic about that out there. I hope there's not. (laughs) I can almost guarantee there's a fic out there about that. I don't want to know. My other option was Blue Sergeant from The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stiefvater. My hair's the right length. I've got the right hair color. I'm the same, like, height for her. It would be pretty easy to be Blue Sergeant. Also, I, too, hate entitled rich children. So, samesies. So, yes. There I was is right. There is literally the very first like eight Google searches. Uh, Crag ships are the best. No, they're not. Moving on. What is the creepiest book you've ever read? I really haven't been that creeped out by anything yet. Like out of any of the stuff I've read per se. So I don't have an answer for this, I guess. Like I don't think I've had anything that's really like creepy. Well, for me, I chose House by Frank Peretti and Ted Decker. It is a Christian horror novel, which I absolutely did not know was a thing until I read it. Right. It's about a group of people who are locked in a house and forced to play a game with rules that make zero sense or they'll be killed. The game is set to end at dawn. And, like, it's got supernatural elements and, like, people are giving in to their sins and that's causing it to get worse or when they're like, repenting for their sins, it gets better, and, like, it's so effing weird and creepy. Yeah, that is kind of creepy and weird, that's for sure. And, like, I read it in high school when I was, like, in that part of the religious world, but it just, no. I I was so creeped out. I was lucky I wasn't reading it in the middle of the night. Definitely. What's a book you plan to read this October? I don't really know, because... My plans are pretty well just organized for me at this point for book reading, so I don't have a plan for it particularly. Like, obviously I don't mind reading something that is kind of horror or, like, creepy. I wouldn't have a problem with that, but I know I'm on a pretty much written track record as to what I'm going to be reading and when, so... Well, the plan is for you to start the Skyward series in October, but also I might have you read Extraordinary, which is also coming out in October. It's by V. Schwab, and it's that graphic bind-up of... Correct. The, like, certain people who are EOs and, like, what happens to them, not including Eli Ever or Victor Vale. Right. But also I'll be in the middle of a couple rereads before sequels are coming out. I'm also going to be reading Pride and Premeditation, which is like a Pride, Pride and, and Prejudice, Prejudice murder mystery novel. It's going to be perfect. I, I just, Pride and Prejudice has had so many weird spinoffs. I know. Like, but this one sounds good because she gets to be like a lawyer, like which it, is fun. It honestly is almost a comparison to like the amount of like Loki spinoffs that exist in the world. So it's just like. I feel like Pride and Prejudice is worse. It, it probably is. Truthfully, there are so many. And the next question, pumpkin spice latte, what's something you love that others tend to judge? 
So the crummy thing about this is because the next question is kind of the same answer, I guess. Um, okay. And for me, it's probably candy corn. I think that's something that I love and a lot of people judge me for loving. You want to know why? It's gross. Because it's fantastic. It's gross. And people are jealous. I said that I don't know that I'm necessarily judged for my love of books, but I definitely feel like I'm judged for the amount of books I read by the people I know IRL. I'm currently on track to read around 150 books this year if I keep the pace that I've been on. And the people in my life seem to think that I don't have a life because of this. They seem to think that all I do is read and do nothing else, which is incorrect. You do do a lot of reading, though. But not so much that I literally do nothing else. It's true. Also, my family judges me pretty hard for my love of hockey because we're from Oklahoma. So they're like, how did you even find this? It's kind of strange. It's really not normal for Anoki to get into hockey. So Not at all. But speaking of Halloween candy, what's your favorite autumn food or candy? It comes down to candy corn and then the uh, seasonal pumpkin Reese's cups are like a bad habit of mine. I love them so much. You know that they're the same candy, right? It's not the same chocolate to peanut butter mix, though. And that's where it makes a difference. There's more yeah. peanut butter in it, for sure. And then, like, anything Oktoberfesty food-wise, I love... He means alcohol. No, I mean food. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> um, we buy it every year, that's why I said it. We do, but that's... So it's the point. Like, I, I just love a lot of the German food that comes out around that period of time. I feel like it's really tasty. Yeah. So, for me, food-wise, apple muffins and scones are my favorite. Like, apples are my favorite to incorporate in things. But my favorite candy that comes in those, like, really big bags of candy that you hand out at Halloween are Smarties. Yeah, I brought you some of those home this week, so that's kind of off the mind, or actively on the mind, I should say. Yes, but also I've always loved Smarties. So So you judge me for eating a sugary snack, but you literally are eating pure sugar in the shape of a circle. It's better than that garbage, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's not. Last question, what is a book or film that seems like one thing but is really different on the inside? So I really struggled with this one. I didn't get an actual answer because, like, I was trying to mull it over in my head for, like, hours this morning because I saw it when I first started writing my notes, and I'm like, let's just peer at it, and then I'll think about it while I'm typing up the rest of my other notes. And I just, I couldn't think of something that's, like, different than what I expected. I feel like for the most part, you've set the standard on the books pretty well for me to understand what's going on. And for films... Like, I do so much previewing of things before I go see a film that I'm never like, man, that's not what I expected it to be. Yeah. Mine was top of mind because it happened this year. I had some trouble with reading The Past by Tessa Hadley because it says it's about a family coming together for one last vacation at their vacation house before they have to decide whether to sell it. And at the same time, all these family secrets are coming out that are related to the house. But it's really just meandering and weird and, like, we never find out any family secrets. The reader has hints that there's a possibility that one of the children is adopted and they don't know it. And I'm like, that's your big family secret? Right. First of all, you should probably tell the child that was adopted. And also, who cares? Right. Like, they've been a part of this family since they were, like, one. So... I I don't know that that's a big deal. Yeah. And so, like, 
that was weird. Also, they never actually have the discussion about whether to sell the house or not. They're just meandering. So for me, that's definitely the one that says it's one thing, but is another. Completely other. As for what I've been reading, I would say whoops, but we said I'm not saying that anymore. So moving (laughs) on. I read First Artemis Fowl by Owen Colfer. It is a 2001 release and book number one in the Artemis Fowl series. It is part of my 40 books to read before 40 list. It's a middle grade fantasy novel that I ended up giving three stars, which means it's better than the Princess Diaries, but still a middle grade that I couldn't see myself really loving and enjoying at this stage in my life. I think if I read it when I was younger, I probably could have. But at this point, I've seen a lot of the tropes and the things that happen in the novel done really well in movies or TV shows or books that it just didn't hit the same as it would have if I had read this in middle grade age or younger YA. But the book is about 12-year-old Artemis who is a genius and criminal mastermind who has no idea what he's gotten himself into when he kidnaps a fairy agent of the LEP recon unit. And it was still fun to see some of the things he does because he is super rich and seeing like the super rich kid with no boundaries lifestyle was kind of fun. But overall, I'm not going to continue with the story. I felt like I was fine with where it left off. It's kind of good. I like it. It's an overhyped book. I feel like maybe from your perspective, but like it is pretty big. It's something that I saw younger kids reading because I was outside the age range when it came out, and so like I knew people who read this and really enjoyed it, but it wasn't ever my thing. And I've heard a lot of good things about it. I think it's literally just a me thing. Like I'm out of the age range for it. Yeah. The. Big, impactful moments in the book would have been more impactful if I was younger and hadn't seen these devices used already. Right. Then I read Love Under Construction by M.C. Cerny. It's a 2017 release and book number one in the Love by Design series. It's part of the 10 rom-com anthology I got a while back, and it's an adult romance novel. This one I rated 1.75 stars. Oof. Really bad. That's not good at all. Basically, this is a friends-to-lovers story about Taylor Jane and her constructor BFF Hunter. They start to butt heads on a flipping project, and repressed feelings turn into something more. My main struggle with this one, besides the poor writing style, the lack of being able to put a well-constructed sentence together, and editing problems, also were compounded by the fact that you had a main male protagonist who grew up in an abusive household when his parents died and then he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle and that's how they met and he's constantly worried about being like his father he has a lot of anger management problems coming out of that home situation and he's constantly worried about taking his anger out on the people he cares about But then you see him doing and saying things that are very manipulative and, like, leaning towards abusive, and he doesn't have any problem with it. And, like, if this is your deep-seated fear, wouldn't you be leaning the complete opposite way? Right. But he's got this whole alpha thing that a lot of people have really started to hate about romance, like, main male characters, and... 
at one point he, like, they finally get together and he's like, I can't do this because I know I'm just going to turn around and be like my dad and I can't do that to you. I love you too much, whatever. But then they have, like, three days away from each other where, like, she's working on the house and never sees him. And then something happens to bring them face to face and then all of a sudden everything's forgiven and fine and they're back together and it's whatever. And, like, that is really bad writing, in my opinion. I feel like that's you not understanding how humans are supposed to deal with confrontation. Right. And, like, maybe you should see someone about that, but... Get some help, dude. It just, it all rubbed me the wrong way, and I... Like, even the sex scenes weren't good for me to read, because at one point they're talking about how she's a virgin, and he's been with a lot of people, and, like, he's dealing with breaking her hymen whenever they're having sex, and I swear to God, I rolled my eyes so hard in my head, I'm pretty sure I sprained something back there. (laughs) So, like, it was just all really gross, and I would have preferred, like, fade to black each time, because it would have been more attractive that way. (sighs) And now I'm wondering if I should have lowered the rating. You're like, should I give it a 1? I mean, it's better than a 1, but is it a 1.75? I don't know. (laughs) And so I decided to reward myself by reading something that I am really looking forward to this whole series I read Red Seas Under Red Skies by Scott Lynch when we talked last. I said I'd be happy if I read 100 pages of this last week. I read the whole thing, so that happened. We knew this was going to happen. I literally said it last week that more than likely you're going to finish this book anyways. Play back the tape. Yeah. So it's a 2007 release and book number two in the Gentleman Bastard series. It's an adult fantasy novel. I ended up reading this 4.5 stars, which is really, really good, but... I think book number one just was a little better. Like, not a ton better, obviously, but I did rate book number one five stars, so this is just slightly worse. That makes it sound bad. I don't mean worse. It It's not as good as the first one. And that's okay. Yes, that happens. In this one, Locke Lamora and Jean Tannen are up to more hijinks in Talvarar when certain powerful people aim to make puppets out of them for their own purposes. And... This one had a lot of very piratey themes. They're on boats for a lot of this, more than I expected going into it. And I think the reason that I gave it less than the first one is just because it felt like we were working on this one con that had to be abandoned because they were being used by people. But then we eventually came back to it, and I didn't like that whole trajectory of the plot. But... I love the humor, I love the writing style, I love the characters, so I love this world and I'm going to continue on with the series for sure. I'm a little scared though because the next one's the last one out and it's been a long time since this person's published. So you're nervous. I'm very scared. Yeah. And then to top it all off, I read Oddball by Sarah Anderson, which was a NetGalley read that releases on October 21st and is available for pre-order now. It's book number four in the Sarah Scribbles comic series, and it's just a bunch of comics from the person who does the really, like, funny stuff about millennial life and pets and being an introvert and... I didn't even know she had collections out, so when I saw this was available to read immediately last night on NetGalley, I was like, I have half an hour. I'll read this. Right. And it didn't even take half an hour. It was really good and really quick. 
You stopped to show me about four or five things, so. It was very fitting for us because we are millennials. After all. And as for what I plan on reading next, I really, really don't think I'm going to read as much as I did last week. I think last week was a fluke just because I was reading a gentleman's book. I don't think that that's going to happen again. So you're not going to add a fourth book is what I'm hearing. I don't think I'm going to read all three. Um, So the first one is Nick and Noel's Christmas Playlist by Cody Hall that I'm reading through NetGalley, and it comes out on October 5th. It's an adult contemporary romance about friends who eventually become lovers. Noel aims to help Nick get over his broken heart this holiday season, and it features plenty of holiday music and cheer and just, like, these very holiday scenes, which we know I love. I love Christmas. It's my favorite. I'm very excited. I do have one question for you. How is the book playing music? I think it's going to reference a lot of things, but also there is an audible version of this coming out that will actually have, I believe, little clips of the music as you're reading through. Okay, see, now that would be kind of cool. Yeah. After that, I'm going to read If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. This is a 2017 release and an adult mystery slash thriller. It's told in two timelines. We see Oliver released from prison and the officer who placed him there discuss what really happened 10 years prior. In the earlier timeline, Oliver is one of seven young actors studying Shakespeare at an elite arts college when one of them is found dead. The rest of them face their greatest acting challenge yet, convincing the police and themselves that they are, in fact, blameless. And this has very dark, dark academia vibes based on what I've heard people say about this. Which we know you love so, so much. I really do. And then I think I'm going to start but not finish Waking Gods by Sylvain Nouvelle. It's also a 2017 release. It's book number two in the Themis Files. It's an adult sci-fi novel about Rose Franklin, who has spent her childhood pondering the mysteries of a giant metal hand, her adulthood on unraveling those mysteries. But when a second giant metal robot, more massive than the first, appears out of thin air and lashes out with deadly force, Rose will have to turn the tide and unlock the last of the secrets of the alien technology. This is told in multimedia format, including after-action reports, interviews, and diary entries, so it's really quick and easy to read, and I really enjoy it for that, though I did sometimes miss the narrative style in the first book, so we'll see how that goes. Sounds kind of like uh, Hank Greeny a little bit. That is what you said when I read the first one. Yeah. Yeah, it does a little bit. I was going to say, I'm like, that's definitely not where we start. Please don't start reading from there. (laughs) Spoiler central. Right. Okay. Just to clarify, guys, I was reading the second third of Arch Enemies this week. Yes. So, scared me there for a little bit. Liberty was starting at the end of the second thirds and was going to start going through the book. And I'm like, no, don't do it. Let me tell you all the things that you're about to read. And break my heart. It's getting a little fuzzier now that it's been over a week since I've finished this book. That's exciting. I mean, that's a little scary for how my brain works, but I also will have read about 150 books this year, so I'm not surprised. I was kind of hoping the caffeine I had this morning would reignite the memories of this section, but there's a lot of nothing going on, I feel like. Like, there's some big things that happened, but... I feel like it's setting up a lot of things. So last we left off, they had just finished the sidekick Olympics. Yes. 
we end up seeing Adrian looking for Hetty, which is the puppet of uh, the puppeteer, Winston's puppet. Are we discussing when he was looking for it in the tunnels or when he was looking for it actively no, in the, he, like... he was in the weapons and artifacts right. looking for it. And, you know, Callum is... is entertaining as always. Giving him a little fun tour yeah. and all of that fun stuff. Because who wouldn't want to give a tour to the infamous Adrian Everhart? That's when they stumble upon the vitality charm, though, too, right? It's like Callum is the one that tells them about it, if I remember correctly. What's happening is... There is a conversation between Callum and Snapshot who are disagreeing about where it belongs. And Callum thinks that it's like defense more than it would be a healing thing. And Snapshot thinks that it should go with all of the things that have healing properties. Kind of a little bit of both. Yeah. You find that out later anyways. And so Nova checks it out to Adrian and then Adrian goes to see Winston Pratt and delivers the doll, the puppet. Right. He's trying to get information out of Winston, and Winston says that Nightmare is alive. Yeah, basically, he's Adrian's upset because he's looking for information on the death of his mother. Right. And the puppeteer basically had told him that, like... I'll tell you something you want to know. No, right. Instead he didn't of say what. what exactly. Yeah. So a little manipulative on behalf of uh, good old puppeteer Winston. So no one is surprised. I was going to say who's shocked. And Adrian goes up to see his parents because he is very like nervous and like this information kind of scares him a little bit because now how does he find Nightmare and deal with her? And they're like, he's a liar. He would lie to you. This yeah. is obviously not true. How would he even know he's been in a jail cell? The whole time, right. How would he even get that information? Right. He is very sort of split on that. Like, how could she have survived it? But technically Nova survived it as well because she was supposedly hiding out in the funhouse when that bomb went off. But also they only found the mask for Nightmare. They didn't find like a body but in reality, if she took a direct hit from the detonator's explosives, it probably would have put her into little small pieces everywhere. But, like, they didn't find blood or body parts or anything, so that's what's weird about it, I think, more so than anything. Like, she wasn't just disintegrated. When he's home that evening, he decides to take his mind off of it by painting the storage room that he has down in his bedroom, and he goes to talk to his dads about it because he's like, I should probably ask first. Such goody-goody. But that gets him a conversation he doesn't want to have with them, which is like, well, how are things with you and Nova? And it's like, I'm, nothing is going on. Leave me alone. Yeah. And then we see, I believe it's the next day, they are training for Agent N, a group of them down in the basement levels. And you find out Adrian is a god-awful shot, no matter what. We already knew that. Yeah. But it's even more apparent. Yeah. And we do have more of a conflict between Nova and the whole team for... Janissa. What is her nickname? Frostbite? Yes, okay. With all of Frostbite's team talking about, like, using Agent N and what it's going to be used for and all this other stuff. Yeah, and then you have Dana, who's in the group, who's still kind of, like, on the fence about, like, where Adrian and... Nova really stand about the use of it. She's like, who cares? If they're villains, they're villains. You know, like, right. they had it coming. They made choices. Therefore, they should be eliminated. And I'm like, that's crazy. 
And then we also see that Nova is trying to, like, spark some sort of romantic connection with Adrian so that, you know, she can get in there and get the information she needs. She's trying so hard to force it. And she's showing him how to shoot and, like, a reverse of that normal scene, which was fun to see. Yeah. But he's still a really bad shot. Well, it's because he was distracted for other reasons this time. Yeah. I also think it's funny that Oscar asked Nova to make him a cane gun for it. Yeah. I thought that was fun. I understand his theory behind it, because, like, if you have to hold the cane as it were, like, what are you going to do? Set the cane down, stand completely still, grab out the gun, and shoot? Like, that's a lot for something like that. It's a lot more useful for him. Yeah. Also, we do have a discussion about the event that's going to be happening in a couple weeks, I believe, with all the renegades and their families. And Oscar tries to invite Ruby and, like, then adds on her brothers because he's not smooth at all. Yeah, I thought your family would like to come. Yeah. You should come. Poor Oscar. You also dropped a little bit there where she Nova slips out the agent and during that training situation. She does a quick trade mm-hmm. of the stuff that Leroy made that's supposed to look like agent in so yeah. that she could get the actual agent in out for him to examine. Correct. This way he can try to figure out how to dispense it and use it against the renegades instead of just against them. Right. And that's the first moment that Nova feels like she's being followed by one of the monarch's butterflies, but it ends up going in a different direction than the way that she's going, so she realizes it's probably just a regular butterfly. Doing butterfly things. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, you used to kind of have to be on high guard for those types of things, because like, right. it's super easy for Dana to follow you without you knowing it. I've always wondered how it actually works where she would be just dumping one butterfly because, like, in a lot of the scenes she turns into, like, just a group of them. I think she turns into a full swarm, but when she's trying to be sneaky, she only sends one of the horde. So does she, like, sacrifice a pinky or a pinky toe or, like, how does it... What size of body part is she losing? I don't know, but, like, technically she can always swarm back together and then turn into a human. She doesn't have to, like, ever lose a butterfly. No, but I'm saying to, like, send just one out. She'd just be like, okay, pinky finger, get to it. I think she has to fully swarm to get a single butterfly. Mm. And so all the other butterflies are off elsewhere being a giant swarm while that one follows whoever they're following. It just doesn't seem efficient, I guess. Is it efficient to only have the power to sketch things and turn them into objects you can use? As it turns out in this book, proves yes, absolutely the case. (laughs) What about rubies? That's not very efficient. Bleeding your weapons? Yeah. Mm. I guess the further the battle goes, though, the stronger you are because you have more weapons. But After the training, though, and the whole thing with the butterfly, Nova goes home to discuss with Leroy and everyone about Agent N delivering the thing that she got and discussing whether it's possible to use it in a vapor form and not harm themselves so that they could use it against multiple renegades at once because they're not going to have an endless supply to just shoot one at a time. Right. And so they start getting him thinking about that and working with that. And also Honey's like, what about that Everheart boy? What's happening there? And I'm like, you're such a mom. But she ends up giving her tips on how to flirt with him and stuff like that to try to build a better connection, which was a funny scene. I just, I feel really bad for Nova because, like, she's had no socializing experience outside of the adults she's been around her entire life. Right. In the next chapter, we end up seeing Adrian go in and finally explore the vitality charm and whether or not that works against Max's power. 
which was the whole reason for him taking it to begin with. Right. And Max is freaking out, like, stop it. What are you doing? Get Don't out Don't come here. in here. What are you doing? Why are you trying to do this? Please, 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 please go away. Pretty much. And then it works. It does. Very well, as it turns out. They're having a very cute brother moment and hugging and being so excited that they can do that without having to deal with, like, the heavy gear that Adrian would have to wear otherwise. And Max makes him try out his powers to make sure he hasn't lost his powers. And so Adrian ends up drawing him another renegade pin, like what he gave Nova the trials. And Max wants to know how. Yeah, he's, like, over the moon shocked. Like, how is this even a thing? And Adrian is distracted by, like, all the opportunities that this gives them and how they can have, like, a movie night and hang out with a bunch of food and do a bunch of video games and all these other things. But Max is like, no, how? (laughs) And Adrian explains that it protects from poisons and disease. And he's like, I'm not poison or a disease. Yeah, but the way his medicine kind of works, it's kind of like that. The way his powers work, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I said medicine. And they decide that they're going to end up giving it to Simon, their dad. And he's like, I'll even bet he'll cry. Yeah. And Max is like, the dread warden crying. Let's film it. Yeah. I thought that was really sweet and silly. And that's when Adrian fully explains that the way that the Sentinel gets his powers is through the tattoos. And he explains how that works to Max. And Nova ends up coming into the lobby at that point, and they are just, like, waving at her, and she's like, explain yourselves. What is happening? Like, how is this even physically possible? And she asks if the vitality charm would work against Agent N, because as a double agent, that's kind of her big fear, Agent N. For obvious reasons. And they don't know, but she asks if the council knows about the vitality charm, but they haven't really brought it to them yet. And he doesn't want anyone to know about it until they've told the council and the Dread Warden and all of that. Nova asks a question that I hadn't really thought too much about, which is why Max doesn't just live with a non-prodigy family. Max is like, I'm fine here. And she's like, you're not a prisoner. Max says, but it's not safe for me to be out in the regular world where there are prodigies who, you know, they don't work for the renegades, but they're just living their lives. Right. And then Adrian brings up the fact that there could be anti-prodigy zealots who would like to get their hands on Max to rid the world of superpowers. And they sort of have another conversation about prodigy rights, like the three of them together discussing how long Max knew about it and all of that stuff, sort of cementing for the reader the line that Nova has for Agent N. And also Adrian, because he is kind of more gray there than most people would be. Nova basically leaves them to be cute together, and Nova goes to her shift at Artifacts. And this is the moment where we see her try to experiment to get the helmet out of the big chromium box. Which is also a very funny, silly scene to watch. I I did enjoy that a lot because she is trying to basically plate something else to get rid of the chromium box. Yeah, she's using electrolysis. Yeah, and so she's mixed up chemicals, she's cleaned things to make sure it adheres to it properly and all of this other stuff so that it has something to go on to. And she's got it all set up, ready to go, acting like she's just doing a usual bit of cleaning and like this isn't a big deal so that the cameras don't think it's a big deal. 
and all of a sudden it sounds like something's boiling and the whole thing just has like a big explosion and nothing's happened to the box nothing's been plated and just what does she do and then the process of that explosion, it knocks something else down that creates a bright flashing light. So for obvious reasons, the security people are like, are you good down there? What, what is going on down there? Yeah. And she's like, it's fine. I mixed something wrong, apparently. Sorry. Yeah. And she has to go about cleaning up her experiment. Yeah. Which, like, I feel bad for her because, like, she put so much effort into it just for it to not work at all and not work very, very quickly. Very quickly at that, and and then just created an absolute utter mess to have to clean up. Like, that's... I, I would have hated that part of it more so than anything myself. And then we see Adrian has tattooed on the vitality charm for him to not need it anymore. He can just go in and see Max now. Which, like, I do and don't like this because there are things that that could, like, mess with plotline, possibly. Since now he's just going to be invincible to all sorts of things. Right. And we also see him, like, trying to think about, like, was Nova actually flirting with him? Or was he imagining it? (laughs) And it's like, oh, child. We also see that he's finished pretty much that storage room that he painted based on the dream that Nova had told him about from her childhood. But while he's down there finishing it up, his dads come home and are like, would you like to explain what you were doing with the quarantine and Max? What the hell? And so he kind of has to explain everything. And at first the dads are like being all emotional. Like, did you sacrifice your powers so you could be with your brother? And he's like, no. I'm not stupid. Ugh, dad. Dad. And so he has to explain to them the vitality charm and how that works and all of the fun stuff. I think this is a moment where they realize like, shouldn't we have known something like this was in the vaults? Like, how is that just in there and no one knows about it? And I think they realize that they have more powerful things than they thought they did at the Renegades headquarters. I feel like it's a good thing because otherwise they would be abusing things more often, I feel like. Maybe that's okay. I mean, it's useful. Like, I would hate to just leave something useful lying around and not ever actually being used. Or even knowing that it exists other than, like, maybe Callum and Snapshot knowing. Right. And then we see Janissa Clark, who is Frostbite, come in to check something out. And, of course, she's being her usual snotty self to Nova. Ends up checking out something that basically leaves an area soundproof, so, like, nothing escapes that little section. Right. And Nova wants to know what she's using it for, but, like, she says she doesn't have to tell her what it's being used for, but they're using it to take down Hawthorne. After that confrontation, Callum shows up and was like, was there actually an explosion? Because security paged me. What happened? Yeah. She explains that she was cleaning and she probably mixed something bad. And he was like, oh, that's too bad. I thought you might have found like a new magical function of something. Something more exciting than just whoopsie daisies. Right. Spontaneous combustion is cool. Yeah. No, Callum. Nothing that exciting. I'm sorry to break your heart. That's when Nova and Callum have this discussion about Agent N, and he's, like, explaining he doesn't really like it, but not for the reasons that Nova doesn't like it. And he's talking about what the world could possibly look like, what humanity could be, if everyone just worked together to be heroes. And she's like, yeah, that's not how the world works. (laughs) And that's when, during this discussion, Callum takes Nova upstairs to, I believe they were going up to where they are supposed to see the council usually, that floor. 
And Prism's there and says, hey there, Wonder Boy. And they have a little chit-chat before Nova and Callum go look outside on the balcony and have a conversation about what the world could be and the beauty of Gatlin City and all of this other stuff. It's a pretty deep conversation, to say the least. Yeah. Towards the end of this really, like, heavy and serious conversation, she goes, Wonder Boy? And he says, just wonder. Prism thinks adding the boy turns it into a cute nickname, which would have been fine when I was seven. Right. And she's like, I didn't think you were a prodigy. But his power is being able to temporarily reveal all the great wonders of the world to whoever he's talking to. Yeah. Which really isn't that crazy good of a power, to be honest. And Nova thinks this is like manipulation. He's like, I can't do anything to your emotions. I can only show your true feelings to yourself. Right. Or what you would possibly see if you bothered to look close enough at any sort of situation or whatever is happening. Which I think is a very like understated power given every other power that's in this book. Right. And probably why he works in artifacts and not on a patrol team. He ends up reminding her of what she's fighting for because of the renegades and what she's been through, but also like how things could be better if people were only better. And she thinks renegades are the problem. And then we see this cute little thing between like Max and Adrian going up to this empty floor so that Max can see if his powers work or not against the vitality charm with the Dread Warden. And so the Dread Warden, who is invisible, is hiding out. And so they're just going up with Adrian in a suit for appearance's sake. Hugh is there as well, who doesn't have to wear one because of his chromium invincibility. Right. And they have a cute moment of father and son bonding while Hugh and Adrian are just having a conversation off to the side. That's when Adrian finds out that the Hawthorne case has been taken over by Janissa and her team. He admits that he's kind of being a petulant child about it. I believe that is when he decides to check on their status of locating Hawthorne. He uses like a tr- the band to track team members basically to figure out where it's basically like having gps more or less or like being able to listen in on dispatch calls so he goes as the sentinel and that's when they find that janissa and stingray and gargoyle are all being very much not heroes some would call them villains the way they're acting Because they've trapped Hawthorne, they've gotten her out of her house where all of the drugs and stuff she's making is. All they have to do is slap some cuffs on her and take her in. But they've decided to torture her and they've decided that they're gonna end up shooting her with Agent in no matter what. And then all the damage that they've done through their torture to her limbs, her extra limbs, will be gone. Because she won't have them anymore because they will have done the Agent in thing. Right. And so he tries to stop the whole thing. It backfires pretty good. Uh, Yeah, really bad. Because they end up making it look like he was torturing her. For making him look bad and that he had killed her when it was really them. And so that paints an even bigger target on his back. The crazy thing is he narrowly narrowly escapes. Yes, like they almost got him. As well. 
And in the next chapter, we see that Nova is trying to find a way to get the vitality charm from the Dread Warden because she wants it to protect herself while she is testing out all of this agent and stuff on the Renegades because she doesn't want to lose her powers. So she decides to go visit Adrian at his home because it's probably at home somewhere. I don't know that the plan was to visit Adrian more than it was to break into the house hoping nobody was home. Well, she does knock on the door, so she she is assuming someone is there. She knocks on the door only because the automated gate opens for her instead of having her have to, like, climb or break in or anything like that. So, like, it recognizes that there is a prodigy at the door and was like, welcome type situation. Not just a prodigy, but a renegade. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's a little astounded by the fact that it's such a nice house and... A lot of things in the city have been ruined and not put back together. Yeah. But Adrian is a little thrown off by the fact that Nova showed up at his house out of the blue. Right. Ends up asking her if she wants to, like, watch a movie and hang out and all this other stuff. So she decides to do that. But before they can get around to watching a movie, first Adrian shows her the jungle landscape he's made. Of her dream. Yeah. It's a little creepy. I was, like, we were talking about creepy things earlier, and I was going to say this, but, like, it's a little creepy, like, almost stalkerish than anything, but at the same time, like, I get the sentiment behind it, too, like, because she's never able to see it in person, like, the way she saw in her dream, so it's like... Well, but he didn't exactly do it for her, like, he didn't not do it for her, but it wasn't specifically made for her, like, to come and see it, like, it was based off of that moment they had in the park, discussing dreams that they've had as children, and so that's the moment he, like, pulls it to life with his powers, and they're sort of swept up in the moment, looking at all of it, and she's like, all of this, and the best alias you could come up with was Sketch, because it's so, like overwhelming and overpowering right and she's trying to figure out like where'd the room go are we still in it and he's like we're still here we haven't left but like you can pull back some of the leaves and you'd be able to see the white wall there because everything's come off of it so it's back to its original form right and she ends up going around to look at the front of that statue and she's like how did you make a star yeah he doesn't really know how he did it so he's like i don't know I did the thing, though. (laughs) Like, it's not a star, like, the way you would think of one, but it's, like, in a dream when you know something is something, even though you don't know how or why or what, it still is. Just there, yeah. But, like, it wasn't in the mural, so it must have been part of his, like, intention when he was thinking about it while he was painting. And she wants to know what it does. Adrian's like, I don't know. It's your star. It's not mine. Yeah. And she's realizing how, like, comfortable and relaxed she is in space and is thinking about how the possible fall of all humanity is what it's going to take to get her to relax and, like, be more comfortable. He's like, yeah, that is kind of bad. And they discuss more about how when her family died, all she could hear when she closed her eyes was the gunshots and the fact that she watched it happen, but she couldn't shoot when she had to deal with the bad guy by herself and that her uncle saved her. She's just never been able to sleep since. Right. Starts to get a little deeper on the level of, like, trust between the two of them in that conversation. So that was a thing, for sure. They also discussed Lady Indomitable's murder as well, which is his mom, and how, like, she can fly, so how did she die falling? From a window. 
and all of that stuff. He blames himself for that because he would sometimes have that fear as a child. So he thought it was his fault, you know, the way survivors and children do. Right. He's asking if he's trying to get revenge. Like, that's why he's trying to find out who did it. He's talking about how he just wants justice. Yeah. And she's not sure what she wants from the council. I don't know. I feel like that's a solid question for Nova because, like, she's never fully decided what she's wanted. She's just sort of gone along with whatever's happened. Right. And then Adrian apologizes because he's like, this is supposed to be a dream, not a nightmare. I'm sorry, like, for bringing up all of this. But he had an idea to make her noise-canceling headphones so that not even the gunshots can get through, as he says. She's tried noise-canceling headphones. They've never worked. But she tries them in this room with Adrian, and they, like, just lay back to enjoy the space, and she ends up falling into a dreamless sleep, which she hadn't expected to happen. For obvious reasons. Well, since her superpower, one of them is to not sleep. But I think you are right that not too much is happening. There's a lot of things setting up other things that you're going to see in the last third of this, or even in the next book. Right. So I feel like you're going to enjoy the next section the most out of this because it does get a lot faster paced in the last third. Yeah, I I am looking forward to all this build up to happen to something. Right. I think you're not going to enjoy one of the somethings. I'm sure I'm not going to because it's a book. And if there's something that can be pulled out of motions, they're usually are included. But it is a trilogy though, right? Yes. So there's one more book to go. So I imagine not everything is going to drop quite in this book. I feel like a certain thing gets dropped and like, that's enough. Yeah. To make you emotional or it made me emotional. Then I'm excited to get there because like I said, the middle of this section has been really just kind of like a lot of things setting things up are going on. So, but that's the way middle of books are supposed to be. Right. They're supposed to get you on the edge of your seat for what's to come. And so I understand, but I am excited to finish it this week so that we can move on to the third book. Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah. We appreciate you guys giving a listen to this longer episode, I feel like. Well, we also had a lot of cat breaks, so we'll see how all that pieces together. Our cat has been a little heck raiser. But in the meantime, make sure you are staying up to date with us on all of our social media, which will be linked in the show notes. And we'll see you next Tuesday for a sports episode. Bye, guys. Bye.